The Life of Christ. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 3. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you again that the entrance of your Word brings light. Father, as we begin to walk through these scriptures and this information, I do ask again that you would please grant us wisdom and insight. Holy Spirit, that you would truly come alongside us, that you would teach us those things that you feel are very, very important for us to know as we walk through these particular parts of the Beatitudes. So once again, Father, we yield ourselves. We do our best to take control of our minds right now. And we rebuke anything that would distract us. We choose in Jesus' name to have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord wants to say to each of us. So help us just focus for now, Father. Help us buckle down and, and listen now and throw ourselves into these things so that we might learn of you. Please grant us again your spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Please open up the eyes of our understanding. Please help us to see what is the hope of our calling and what is the riches of the glory of your inheritance in Christ. In Jesus' name, we ask you these things. Amen. Okay, this is hour number three on the life of Christ, and I want you to turn to actually Matthew 5 first. I said Exodus 19. We'll go there in just a moment because we're going to begin to speak about the Beatitudes here. Um, and I'm going to read from the King James from Matthew 5 here and just go through these eight Beatitudes and then we'll begin to speak to them. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. This is in the King James Version. Actually, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to back up the last three verses of Matthew 4 so you can see it in context. So Matthew 4:23 says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, in preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Then verse 1 of chapter 5 it says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
But rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter so we can see it all to get in context. He said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Actually, I'm going to stop there, okay? Now, let me just begin to read. If you have your notes, then if we'll go back here. Well, this, of course, is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes, I'm just going to read from some of my notes. You won't have some of the comments that I do on mine, but... In a Bible college, they will teach you this, that the Beatitudes are actually the basis for what we would call our Christian constitution. In other words, like a constitution and bylaws of a nation. Because Jesus here is turning the whole world upside down as far as what all of his disciples expected. Because remember, he's, about, he's introducing a whole brand new way of looking at things that is totally opposite, 180 degrees off from what they'd been brought up in all their life through the law. They, with the entire Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes are said to represent the, the principles that govern all human conduct. They're also said, in fact, again, to be the constitution laws of the kingdom of God. And that's just something, again, if we were taking an exam later, you'd, they'd ask you about that quite often. These are considered to be the, the bylaws of the kingdom of God. These Beatitudes, these seven, actually there's seven, well, there's eight Beatitudes, but most people would say there are seven, and the eighth sums them all up. I'm going to read on the top of the outline. The Sermon on the Mount began with Christ's disciples as hearers. He ascended a hill shaped like an amphitheater, which rose above the city of Capernaum, and there he taught the twelve. But the Lord could not be, hid, could not be hidden long, for soon a great multitude began to gather unto him. For a short space, he occupied himself with the physical needs of the people. In other words, when he healed all the sick. And then when the multitude was properly seated, he began his discourse, which has ever since been known as the Sermon on the Mount. We will speak particularly to the Beatitudes. In this teaching, Jesus simply detached himself from this world entirely. And so what, the first thing we're going to look at here is I've got here is the contrast between the law that was given on Mount Sinai and the sermon that was given on the Mount. So if you'll turn to Exodus 19 now, I just want to read this for you so that you can see it for yourself. But again, this is vital because, uh, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Jesus Christ came to bring, I mean, you know this already, don't you? But Jesus Christ came to introduce a whole brand new way of looking at things. One of the things that I'll mention here a little bit is, is just one of the many uh, just one of the many legends that all of Israel had as far as their expectation of this coming Messiah. They thought when the Messiah came that 
rather than coming as this prince of peace, they expected somebody to come that was truly a conqueror. They expected, they, there were all kinds of myths and legends about a man who would stand one foot on Crete and another foot all the way to, to what today is modern Saudi Arabia. In other words, a giant would appear and all, all kinds of things that was deeply in all of their literature and what have you. So they were totally taken aback when this man came who was the son of God and did exactly, basically the opposite of everything they expected to happen. But the law, let's look at how the law came when Moses gave the law. So in Exodus chapter 19, we'll start actually in, uh, um, well, we'll start in the, ver in the 10th verse. Well, actually, okay, in the 9th verse, back when. Exodus chapter 19, verse, verse 9. I'll, I'll read this from the Amplified Bible. Now, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud. Now, listen to his intention here. Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you and remain steadfast forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Go and sanctify the people. Set them apart for God today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes. And be ready by the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the cloud, in the sight of all the people. Now, this is incredible. I mean, you know, God's saying he's actually going to allow a manifestation of himself to be seen by all of Israel. We're talking some two million people. Again, and be ready by the third day, verse 11, for the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the cloud in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, And you shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, Take heed that you go not up into the mountain, or even touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch it or the offender, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through with arrows. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Verse 14, So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and sanctified them, and set them apart for God, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready by the day after tomorrow. Do not go near a woman. The third morning there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. I, I've always loved this next verse. It says, Then Moses brought the people from the camp to meet God. I mean, is what I mean is, it just sounds funny. Have you ever taken something? I'm gonna, I'd, I'd like to take you over to meet my wife, Julie. Moses brings all the people up to meet God. If you can just picture, I've, I've always had this picture in my mind where I see him walking up. You know, he's come down the mountain. He's gone out to where all of Israel is camped. And he says, follow me. We're heading to the base of this mountain. So he walks them all up to this mountain. And they get to the base of this mountain. And all of a sudden, this begins to happen. It says... In verse, uh, which one? 17. See I, see, I need you so desperately. That Moses brought the people from the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, for the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like that of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly, and the trumpet blast grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke, and God answered him in a voice. In other words, if you can picture two million people come up for this mountain, and suddenly God's little toe touches down on this mountain. The whole earth begins to shake. There's this heat, it says, like a blast furnace coming off the whole mountain. And this voice that's thundering, and lightning bolts are coming out of this cloud everywhere, spitting all over. And Moses says, folks, meet God. Oh, well, I like that, personally. 
I mean, you know, meet God and, the, the, and all this going on. I mean, to me, it would have been a little bit impressive. I can see that you're really thrilled by that. But anyhow, it thrilled me. As the trumpet blast grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, verse 19, and God answered him with a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up into the middle of all this. The Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord sanctify and set apart themselves for God, lest the Lord break through against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself charged us saying, set bounds about the mountain, sanctify it and set it apart for God. Then the Lord said to him, go get down and you shall come up, you and Aaron with you, but let not the priests and the people Break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And back to the outline. So basically, it's just that this is, this is why we teach the grace so much and what have you, because we keep trying to communicate to people that you have to be very careful not to mix the old covenant and the new covenant in some of these major areas. But let's look, basically, the contrast, the law that came from Sinai came with the background of thunder and lightning, with the voice of a trumpet that waxed louder and louder. The sound came from an unseen presence shrouded by clouds intermingled with pillars. And then point four says it began in Exodus 20, of course, is where he, God actually gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And every commandment started with either thou shalt or thou shalt not. What was proclaimed was called a law of threatening. And, of course, the law from Sinai was a type and shadow. But the most major important thing that I simply want you to see as we walk through this is that the law demanded outward obedience. Did you hear me? The law demanded, everybody say outward obedience. I just want to make sure that you're alive, okay? The law demanded outward obedience. But the Sermon on the Mount, if you can see how opposite it was, it came with sweetness and words of peace. It began with words of blessedness. It proclaimed a new law of mercy. It was not a type or a shadow, but it was reality and fulfillment. In this new law, the issue was not based upon outward performance, but it was based upon innermost thoughts because what God's doing now is rather than dealing with your outside, he's dealing with their heart. This was God's will for a certain stage of human development as far as the law was concerned. Now, the new commandments given on the Mount of Beatitudes were not meant to annul the law, but to make possible its fulfillment. The law was founded upon the eternal distinction between right and wrong. And Jesus said that it would be easier for the heavens to fall than to destroy even one tittle of the law. And tittle is just, it means a little hook, one of the Hebrew letters. That's a phrase for one of the little hooks on the Hebrew words. The people, including the disciples, supposed that the kingdom would begin with an outward show of glory. They were expecting a Messiah who would break the yoke of the Romans from off their necks. Their minds were filled with legendary prophecies of how the king would stand on the shore of the Sea of Joppa and the waters would pour out pearls and treasures at his feet. He would feed them manna sweeter than that which fell in the wilderness and clothe them with precious jewels and with scarlet. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ revealed to them something altogether different, that happiness does not come through the amassing of earthly riches and that it was the meek and the poor who would inherit the earth. But basically, again, I just, if, you, if you can just, just say the word heart with me, okay? Just heart. The whole, and uh, please don't turn off because I know, like I said, it's, it's just a lot of information I've got to pump out on this one. But what will change your entire life is when you really do, and some of the other courses that some of you, some of you have already said through with me, you've heard me talk about, you know, the spirit, the soul, and the body a little bit. 
But the whole issue of grace, the whole revelation of the new covenant was just that, that Christ came to deal with people's hearts, that what he was after was what was in your heart. What he was after is getting to your heart. The law was all about outward obedience and outward performance. And I say this often in students, sometimes they, they miss, well, they, I don't know what they think, but I, I just want to say this as we go further. Most people today in churches are more concerned about their flesh than God is. Because most of your life you've been told that your flesh is your enemy and flesh this and flesh that. And, and all you ever, you, you know, you're so concerned about what you do that you're busy trying to fix what you do. But again, as you've heard from some of the other courses, you can never fix what you do until first you receive who you are now in your heart. In other words, it's when you find out God's looking upon your heart that you begin to understand how free you are from the things of the flesh. In other words, what empowers you. Remember when we taught on grace, we said that it's the revelation of the grace of God that actually empowers you to say no to sin. You don't get free from sin by people looking at you and staring at you and saying, would you quit sinning? Because everybody already knows they need to quit sinning. You don't get free by people just barking at you all the time, telling you that you must stop doing these things. Freedom comes from the revelation of what God has done on the inside of us. And so Jesus is turning this whole thing around. Like I said, you have to really put yourself in this. He's looking at all these multitudes. He's just healed many of their sick. And now he sits down and his disciples come up to him. And where, you know, they're just learning who this man is as well. And some of them believe, but they're just not quite sure. But he's given him now all these beatitudes. He's going to say, this is what causes you to be blessed. Because all of their life, remember, and all of their history and all their generational understanding has been based upon goodness upon, that's based upon works. In other words, you do this just right. You go here just this. You do this at this time of day. You, you pick up wood at this time of day. You serve your food at this time of day. Everything's, everything's ritualistic. Everything. But now he's going to turn everything around again. So the very first one he says is blessed. The very first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. He said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And really what he means by this, this word poor, if you look it up, it speaks to humility. Literally, the word means to em empty yourself. And what, like the old commentaries will say, is that when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means those who have emptied themselves out so that they might be filled with Christ. Okay? Jesus reversed everything, their thought processes and their value systems. And now they're being told, and, and remember, what, what time is this that we're dealing with? You do, who was in control of the world right here? Rome. Roman legions, Roman centurions, Roman soldiers who could kill you at their whim any single time they wanted to. Remember, these men actually could pull you off the street. You could be tortured. You could be jailed. You could be murdered in a moment, and really without hardly any recourse whatsoever. So Jesus is talking to a bunch of people, and he's about to tell them in the midst of all this, this world that they're living in, I mean, this world where they're surrounded by enemies, by people that only live by military strength, he reverses everything, their thought processes and value systems. Now they're being told to, point A, submit to authorities, to esteem others more than themselves, and to love, to love their enemies. Now, we can say that real easy, but has anybody here ever tried that? To, I mean, love your enemies. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. They are to discover that the way up, this is the next page, they are to, they are to discover that the way up is not to push and to fight, but truly to kneel and to pray. 
Christ's example, he is a man, he clung to nothing that was external. He abandoned all ease. Remember, this is the guy that we're supposed to copy. Ephesians 5, 1 says, Be ye therefore imitators of God. How many of you, again, were Sunday night at the conference when Dutch spoke on the difference between suke and pneuma? Was anybody here? A few of you? Those who weren't there, it would really be good. It was just a basic teaching that he does out of a course that I'm familiar with that he does. But this is the whole thing. What God's trying to get us to is he's trying to get us away from a man-centered life to a Christ-centered understanding where we quit living from our soul. The suke man is what it's called. It's the Greek word for soul. And we truly begin to live from our spirit. But this is what Christ did. And we have to understand he was the highest example of authority that there was that ever walked on this earth. If we can somehow find it within ourselves to begin to imitate this man, um, you will find yourself carrying a greater authority. It's just that simple. And you need to walk in the authority that God's given you. You really do. But authority will not function where there's man-centered lifestyles. In other words, when you're trying to live by the strength of your flesh or the strength of your mind or anything else. Christ's example, he is a man, again, he clung to nothing that was external. He abandoned ease. He abandoned popularity of the masses. He abandoned the favor of those in power and the sympathy of friends. As I put down here, it does not mean, though, that poverty is spirituality. In other words, when he says poor in spirit, any more than having riches is a sign of spirituality. Being aware or sensible of their spiritual poverty, in other words, having a re revelation of their own emptiness, this is what he's saying. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who have an understanding that they need help. That's all this means. He said, you're going to be blessed if you really don't lean to your own prideful understanding and if you really have an awareness that I need help. That's basically what he's saying. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Being sensible, it means to be sensible of their spiritual poverty. They placed themselves at the door of mercy and they knocked there. Their language is God be merciful and their, their posture is standing, watching and waiting at wisdom's gates and at the gates of her door. And the second beatitude is, blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. In his second beatitude, the Lord again puts himself in opposition to the favorite maxims of the world. The world says, Get as much pleasure out of life as possible. Live it up. Put out of your mind everything that disrupts you. Don't be too concerned about the troubles of others. And if you should get too disturbed, take a tranquilizer. Eat, drink, and be merry, for today we live. But in complete contrast, Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn. And the word blessed, as it will say in the Amplified, means spiritual well-being and prosperity. And it speaks of the deep joy of the soul. But he says, blessed are they that mourn. And it's talking about a sorrow, but we're going to look at a little bit of 2 Corinthians 7 in a moment. The Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance that needeth not to be repented of. There's a worldly sorrow. Jesus is not talking about being sorrowful uh, after the world's form. It's talking about a godly part. But it means to have the understanding that you really do need to, as it were, mourn over your sins. In other words, that you don't relax in them too much. And here's James chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 out of the Amplified Bible. And again, what Jesus is doing here is he sits with these 12 and then the multitudes, he's reading their hearts and trying to communicate to them, this is what the new kingdom is going to be like. Here in James 4, it says, come close to God and he will come close to you. Recognize that you are sinners and get your soiled hands clean. Realize that you've been disloyal, wavering individuals with divided interests. 
and purify your hearts of your spiritual adultery. That's an incredible phrase. Purify your hearts of your spiritual adultery. As you draw near to God, be deeply penitent and grieve and even weep over your disloyalty and let your laughter be turned to grief and your mirth to dejection and heartfelt shame for your sins. And that can almost sound like it's contradictory to some of the things that we've taught because we want you to be full of joy, full of life, and what have you. But there has to be this balance. In other words, this is why, you know, when we teach on grace, I make this statement, we, or when I teach in the love walk about how important it is to walk and have a revelation of God's love for you that even when you sin, He never leaves you, He never departs. Remember, even when you step out of, even when you... Um, Step out of the word, it says in Hebrews, God does not remove his favor or stand apart from you. But again, the danger that we all surely obviously see is that many people, they enter into a place of what we call sloppy agape, or some people call it greasy grace, where they think they can do anything they want to do, that they can just continue in sin or what have you. And there does need to be that something in you that does hurt. And hopefully all of you have that. I mean, you know, the Bible says to be careful that you don't harden your heart, as in the day of provocation. Any of you ever had a callus on your hand? Anybody know what a callus is? Anybody ever used a de de demonic tool called a shovel before or anything like that? Part of the ladies never have. Well, you know, a callus, if you ever had a callus, I remember as kids growing up, we'd be working out in the fields and stuff with my dad and what have you. And, you know, the big deal is if you had a big callus on your hand, it was always real fun to get one of mom's sewing needles and stick a needle in the callus in your hand so you could show everybody the needle sticking out of your hand. Because, you know, because you didn't feel it all because it's, it's gone into callous. You, it's past feeling. So remember the verse that says that. It says there are some people that are past feeling. It says their hearts have been, have been darkened and they've, they're past feeling. Their consciences have been seared. Listen to this. Their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. I remember this old fellow once. You know how over here you, you have a teapot that boils and as soon as it boils, you know, you pour the boiling water into the cup and... I never forget this guy that worked with my dad. They had, I mean, I mean, it would be boiling coffee, boiling hot coffee. They would pour this, it was boiling, and he'd just knock a whole cup back. I mean, it was boiling. But he'd, he drank coffee like that all his life for so long that his throat was seared, and he just didn't feel the heat of it. The Bible says that your consciences, your spirit, your ability to feel can be seared like with a hot iron until you're past feeling. It says that you can harden your heart. And the thing about that is, you see, when people continue to play with sin, let me say this about sin real quick, because we haven't talked much about sin on any of the courses because I'm trying to communicate that which keeps you from it. The Bible says, lust having conceived bringeth forth sin. Conception. There's a conception period between, now the, remember the, even the word lust, all, the word lust just means an inordinate, passionate desire. You can lust after money. You can lust after a car. You can lust after a job. But where there's that inordinate desire, that, mm, that strong passion towards something that's a fleshly motivation, well, like I said, money or whatever, much less somebody of the opposite sex, it says there's a conception period between when you move from just the passion of the desire to where it actually becomes sin. The Greek word's hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. If you're in a four-year Bible college, they teach hamartiology. Lust having conceived bringeth forth sin. And the word sin, remember, is actually an archery term, bow and arrows. It's an archery term. The word actually means to miss the mark. To sin is to miss the mark. But nevertheless, the rest of that scripture says, Lust having conceived bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, 
bringeth forth death. Okay? But what you'll find out when you study Scripture is that sin doesn't send you to hell. Unbelief does. Now listen to that. This is really crucial. Uh, we're going to actually get to some of this in one of the other courses another time, but I need, it's okay, I think, even right here to introduce this. Sin does not send you to hell, but sin will lead you into unbelief, unbelief, and unbelief will send you to hell. So you have to have the right understanding of sin. Sin is horrific. It's horrific. You ought not want to linger around in it and hang around with it, but at the same time, sin is something that you can repent of. Sin is something that you can ask for forgiveness of. Sin is something you need to stop doing. <laughs> Real simple. So if you continue, this is the thing. It's like in the old days. I remember when I got saved, you know, I came out of a life of drug addiction, as you know, in, her in prison or what have you. And I can remember talking with young kids and saying to them uh, way back in the old days about like, you know, they about not smoking marijuana. And, and guys would say, well, but marijuana is no big deal. And, you know, I'd look at them and say, well, you know what? Really, probably marijuana isn't a big deal. But I said, what is a big deal is your attitude that says it's no big deal. <laughs> Did you hear me? I said, because it's, it's this something in us that says, well, this isn't that bad. I can control this. This is not a big deal. Now, what you don't know is when you have that attitude, you are ever so subtle. You're hardening your heart, your spirit. In other words, it's constant pressure like on one part, just like on your hand, just one part of your spirit. You can harden that. In other words, if you continue to go against the known will of God in an area like that, and you continue to just, mm, I've justified this, it's okay for me. Because in particular, everybody, the way hell works, you know, is that everybody has a sin. Remember how the Bible says, lay aside the sin. Lay aside that sin and the weight that does so easily beset you. Sometimes things aren't actually sins. They're just weights that easily beset you. They're holding you back from ever experiencing the fullness of what God has for you. Do you hear me? They hold you back. It may not be out and out sin, but it holds you back. But when you continue to entertain that little thing that's okay for you, you can get past feeling. Trust me. You can get to the point where it doesn't even bother you anymore. Like working with Ed Cole all those years when we'd work with all these guys and these guys that would get hooked on pornography and going on to these computers and what have you. And, you know, I, just that, it's, you know, it may sound unbelievable, but I mean, you know, people, are, people get seduced by all manner of things. And I mean, they, would, they, they just couldn't see how that was so wrong, <laughs> which blew my mind. But nevertheless, if you keep saying yes to a very small sin. It may be a very small sin. It may be not a big deal, but see, the attitude of, but that's okay for me, begins to harden your heart. And you get past feeling in that area. You hear me? It may just be one tiny area of your massive spirit. But the thing is, if you harden your heart consistently in that one area, that callus can begin to grow because you know what happens is hell will serve you really well you'll, quote unquote, get away with that little thing for so long that you'll begin to think, well, you know what? Maybe it's okay to get a little loose in this area too. In other words, I haven't seen any great huge judgment from this. So maybe it's okay to move on to this area and that callus begins to grow and that hardening begins to grow. And when your heart is really hardened, that's when you actually wind up moving towards unbelief. And unbelief is dangerous, trust me. Unbelief well, unbelief, like I said, is what sends people to hell. But sin's what leads you to that. So one way or the other, we have to still have a right attitude about sin. We have to realize when you sin, don't ever let even the smallest thing. You know, the Bible says it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's just the little foxes. 
Learn to deal with little things quickly. Amen? Just say amen. amen. Just deal with little things quickly. You know, it's like weeds. Deal with weeds while they're small and while they're tiny before they take deep root and become something you can't control and you need help to get rid of them yourself, all right? So to mourn over your sins, blessed are those who mourn. Point B, to truly be, it also means to truly be concerned for the need and the well-being of others. In other words, loving others. And again, John 12, 24, 25 for verily, verily, Jesus said, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, if it will die, it will bring forth much fruit. And then he says, he that loves his life, and I, I, I should read that in the Amplified, but I'm just going to leave it. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. The word hate there in the Greek, the Greek always means relative disregard. It doesn't mean, it's just like when Jesus said, except you hate your father, mother, brother, sister, wife, you, your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. It doesn't mean that you hate like you're thinking. It means relative disregard. So he said, we need to have a real disregard about all that this world has to offer. Next paragraph, in proportion, as we enter into a sharing of the sufferings of mankind, we receive the comfort of God. Our sorrow is not to be the sorrow of this world, for, quote, the sorrow of this world works death. But godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of, 2 Corinthians 7.10. Our mourning over the sorrows of the world must have a practical result. He doesn't want us to become hermits and go off in the desert and live out our days. We must, as Jesus did after he spent his hours in prayer, rise up and begin ministering to the world, comforting their sorrows and healing their wounds. So that's blessed are they that mourn. The third beatitude is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, each one of these, he's trying to get to your heart. He's looking at these 12 and he said, guys, listen, blessedness comes from this, from this. Jesus sets the example, 1 Peter 2.23, blessed are the meek. This is what his testimony was. Said Jesus, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself, he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And here's a little, on the next page, a little word study of the word meekness. I'm just going to read something I have in my outline. Again, the Lord explains the character of those who are, who are of the kingdom of God by contrasting their spirit with that of the world. The world says, stand up for your rights. Don't let the other guy put anything over on you. But Jesus says otherwise. He said, blessed are the meek. Now, this Greek word is praeutes, P-R-A-U-T-E-S. And I've always loved this definition, but just listen to this definition of, the, of this Greek word, blessed are the meek. The Bible says Jesus was the meekest of all men. Praeutes is not readily expressed in English for the terms meekness or mildness commonly used today suggests weakness, don't they? In other words, if you were to say somebody, that guy's really meek, the first picture you would see is somebody that's weak. You know, at least that's kind of how we hear the words today. It's not readily expressed in English for the terms meekness, mildness commonly used suggests weakness and solemnity, which means equanimity of spirit. That just means where you're just uh, kind of boring to a greater or less extent, whereas proutis does nothing of the kind. It must be clearly understood, therefore, that the meekness that was manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer. Now, this is an important sentence. Listen to this sentence. The meekness manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer is the fruit of power. Did you hear that phrase? The fruit 
power. In other words, whatever this meekness is, he says, it's the fruit that comes from having power in your life. In other words, when you have, when you know who you are, you don't have to prove it to anybody. There's a meekness that comes into your spirit because you recognize who you are. You recognize the authority that you walk in. The common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But the Lord was meek because he had the infinite resources of God at his command. Described negatively, meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. But it is equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it is not occupied with self at all. Jesus was a meek man, and he said, blessed are the meek. And he would love for all of us to walk in this meekness. And I love that phrase. You've heard me share the story. I think I forget, maybe it was in the Love Walk when I taught about this businessman in Texas and what have you, who was the chief executive of a major gigantic oil corporation and how they would work off, off, off site a lot. And in Texas, you know, these guys, these old boys would wear their Levi's and this shirts and they'd work and they'd go work at the ranch and how he, I don't want to elaborate on the whole story, but I always remember my friend who worked with him saying how they came to the office. They came back to the office to work. They left papers up at the top of this huge 80-story 80, 80 building that basically he owned. He's the big man. He's the big cheese. And there's about five or six of them all wearing their Levi's and boots and what have you. And, and many, I mean, I forget, you know, this several thousand employees, several, several thousand employees in this thing there in Fort Worth, Dallas, in what's called the Metroplex area. <laughs> Anyhow, they're going up in the elevator to the top floor, 90 floors, but around the 25th floor or something like that, I forget which it was, Bruce Binkley's my friend who was sharing this story with me. They stop uh, because the elevator is being serviced, and so they had to get off of a floor so they could walk up two floors till they could catch another lift on another, on another ramp area. But when they got off, you know, this old fellow, that he's, the, he's, the head, he's the head dude. He's the boss. He's the man that pays all the bills. And there's this massive floor area with partitions and office spaces and all these people, maybe 100 people in offices, you know, the, an open office plan, if you've ever seen how they have in the States with just partitions and what have you. And this fellow, I won't call his name because you might have heard it, but he gets off and there's a water cooler there. And because they walked up flight, he, gets, he goes to get a drink of water. Well, the, the floor manager of this company walks up and mistakes the owner of the company for a janitor. He sees him getting a drink of water and he begins to yell at him. He says, it's about time you got in here. He said, this place hasn't had its rubbish cleaned out, he said, all day. He said, get to work. He said, there's a rack over there. And he, he points at this cart and stuff like that. Now, this, is, these, this floor manager is talking to his boss and has no idea who he's talking to. Bruce tells me, I've never forgotten the story. Bruce said, he, this man just looked at him and smiled. And he said, is that right? It needs to be picked up. And he said, yes, it does. And he said, and then walked him over. He said, here's the storeroom, storeroom thing right here by all the lifts. And, he opens it up for him, and the old man, this old fellow, the chief of the company, pulls out the cart, gets black rubbish bags, walks around the whole thing, takes just 10 minutes, empties all their trash, brings all their trash back, and they have chutes, you know, where they throw all the trash down. And they throw it, put all the chutes down, and the guy, floor manager, is going about his business, and then he walks back around, and the old man's just wiping his hands off. And <laughs> Bruce said, we were all sitting here like this, waiting to see what was going to happen. And he said, this old fellow walked up, uh, the floor manager walked up to the old fellow, and he said, did you, did you get them all done? And he said, yep. And he said, yeah, I got them done. And he said, can I go to the next floor now? And the guy said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go about your business. And so this, the owner of the company just walks up the next floor, and they go on up. He never says a word. And he said, Bruce, Bruce said, we looked at each other and went, hmm, wonder what I would have done in that same situation. <laughs> but the point of that whole story was we talked about when a man knows who he is, 
When you know who you are, when you know who you are, you don't have to broadcast it. You don't have to go around telling everybody you're the chief of this or the chief of that or anything else because he knew who he was. That's the meekness that Jesus is talking about here. That's the meekness that this Greek word priorities means. It's having this equanimity of spirit. I love the way it says it. This equanimity of spirit that is neither elated nor cast down simply because it's not occupied with self at all. Hear me? Blessed are the meek. See, blessed are the meek. We need to get to that place where we have such an awareness of our, of our, of our salvation. Such an awareness. You know, we, you do know that we have eternal life, don't you? Don't we? Does anybody here have eternal life besides me? Thank you. Good. I see you're thrilled about it. The Bible says, lay hold on eternal life whereunto you are called. In other words, take a hold of the truth that you've got eternal life. I know you're in this stinking dirty world for a while. But remember, the Bible says, what is your life? It is but a vapor. It appeareth and it vanisheth away. We're only here for a season. This is not reality, remember. So it's okay. We need to find out who we are in Christ and understand that we're, all of this is going to build up to the fact that he's saying, if you're going to follow me and if you're going to begin to bear the fruit that I want you to bear, you're going to have to have these bylaws of the constitution of the kingdom of God understood in your own spirit. Okay. Okay, meekness doesn't mean that you never assert yourself, however. Jesus took a whip, remember, and drove the people out of the temple. He rebuked men who needed rebuking. Point B, if we are meek and take the lowest position, then there will come a time when the master will say, friend, go up higher, Luke 14, 10. And when God gives us our portion, no one can take it away from you. Hallelujah. Did you hear that part? Very important. Let me tell you, promotion comes not from the north or the south or the east or the west, but promotion comes from the Lord, the Bible says. When God does promote you, no man can bring you down. That's the incredible thing. It's just like when God sets you in a ministry office, nobody can fire you because they didn't hire you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, well, I can see you're thrilled. Next one. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hunger, of course, means just that it's a strong craving. He said people who hunger and thirst after this revelation of what it means to have right standing, they should be filled. These emotions are expressed in other ways than just food or drink. Men hunger, of course, today for position or they hunger for a place in society. Others crave amusement. Others crave fame and worldly honor. Ecclesiastes 1.8, Solomon makes a statement about the truth about people are. And he says about people, he said, all things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing and the ear is never filled with hearing. In other words, man at its lowest state just never is satisfied. That's why there's a great difference between satisfaction. One of the things I used to teach a long time ago is the difference between satisfaction and contentment. First Timothy 6, 6 says godliness with contentment is great gain. And when you study these things out, you find out the satisfaction to be satisfied. Satisfaction is, is in the soulish realm. But contentment comes from the realm of the spirit. You can be dissatisfied up here, but you can have a contentment at work here at the same time. Again, it's similar to when you've heard me share about the difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a soulish emotion. Joy is a spiritual force. I can have, I can have, I can have some people do some things that upset my happiness, but it does not steal my joy because I've got eternal life. Hallelujah. I don't lose my joy when things don't go right with stuff like this. I used to years ago, you know what I mean? But when a hunk of metal begins to dictate to my spiritual life, 
I learned a long time ago to draw a line. I'm not going to freak out. God's not going to fall off his throne, and I'm sure not going to fall off my throne, so why get shook? You know what I mean? We are to hunger after the right standing that is of God. The next beatitude is number five, blessed are the merciful. And this is, of course, please, I hope this is obvious. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now listen, it's really dangerous. All through Scripture, it speaks. There's all manner of Scriptures that say, if you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. Trust me. You do not need justice. <laughs> if you got what you deserved, you'd be in trouble. An old preacher years ago used to say, grace is God giving you what you don't deserve, and mercy is God keeping back what you do deserve. But blessed are the merciful. Point A, true mercy, true mercy or pity must lead to effective action in order to remove human misery. If we have it within our means to help and don't, we can be in very dangerous territory. If that's something that you consistently pursue where you have it within your means to help and you are not merciful. Because God is merciful. I mean, I still think one of my favorite verses all my life is going to be one of the, by the mercies of the Lord are you not consumed? Lamentations 3, you know, by the mercies of the Lord are we not consumed? For his mercies, his compassions fail not. They are brand new every morning. That verse that we quote so much. I mean, you ever thought about that? All the mercy of God is brand new every morning? I mean, that's amazing to me. And one of my favorite things to say is every time I get up, I think about the fact that whatever I did today, I didn't use up all of God's mercies. <laughs> To me, that brings me great solace. <laughs> and when I, when I wake up tomorrow morning, all of his mercy towards me is going to be brand new. I get to start a brand new, fresh, unspoiled day. Somebody say hallelujah. hallelujah. Some of you need brand new, unspoiled days. Psalm 18, 25 and 26 is just one of the verses. It says, with the merciful, thou wilt show thyself merciful. With an upright man, thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. But with the froward, you will show yourself forward. Pity that does nothing is regarded in Scripture as a form of hypocrisy. That's James 2:15. If we wish to know how the Lord will deal with us at the end of time, we can find the answer in the Lord's prayer when he says, forgive us as, as we forgive others, as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. Father, we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus for this session. And somehow, Father, begin to communicate to us what it means how we will understand a blessed life, to understand what it means to be poor in spirit, to understand and mourn over our sins, what it means to walk in meekness, what it means to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and what it means to be merciful. So we thank you for helping us through these in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.